Should I do the whole introduction? Who was not here last night? Oh, some of you are not. I will tell you who our speaker is. Professor Gurak is the Libby M. Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University. He served from 1982 through 2002 as Associate Editor of American Jewish History, the leading academic journal in the field, and was twice Chair of the Academic Council of American Jewish Historical Society. He's the author or editor of 18 books, um, including Judaism's Counter with American Sports, which is, is uh, related to what we'll be talking about today, The Colonial and Early National Period, 1654 to 1840, American Jewish History, uh, The Wide World of C Central Synagogue, which we'll be visiting on our upcoming trip, A Modern Heretic and Additional Community, Mordechai M. Kaplan, Orthodoxy and American Judaism, um, which book was awarded the bian biannual Saul Wiener Prize from the American Jewish Historical Society for the best book written in that field. Professor Gurak's Orthodox Jews in America, which was published in 2009, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in the era of American Jewish studies. His, his um, study, Jews in Gotham, New York Jews in a Changing City, 1920-2010, received the Everett Family Foundation Award for the best nonfiction Jewish book of 2012 from the Jewish Book Council. His most recent book is The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. That was the topic of our program last night, which was recorded by Grendel and hopefully it will be up on our iTunes site in the next week or two. Um, relevant to our topic today, Professor Gurak has been an athlete all of his life, playing a variety of sports as a kid. He played on the lacrosse team at City College. We had some City College people here last night. Um, he served as assistant men's basketball coach at Chief University for over 25 years, and he's run over 275 road races of varying distances, including 12 New York City marathons and two Boston marathons. Um, in total, he has run over 30,000 miles in 30 years. Please join me in welcoming our guest today, Professor Jeffrey Gurak. I have written a very different type of sports, Jewish sports books. Of course, many of you recall the movie Airplane, where the opening scene, a passenger asks the flight attendant for a very short book and she pulls out great Jewish sports heroes. You may have seen that film. Yeah. There, are other types of, there are other types of Jewish sports books which tend to dramatize the achievements of great Jewish athletes. Um, and uh, there are encyclopedias which try very hard to enumerate as many Jewish athletes as possible. Now, why were these books done? Well, one of the reasons was to answer a canard that was leveled against Jews, that they somehow weren't American because they didn't play sports, they weren't strong, they weren't robust like our pioneer ancestors, or so the story goes. So the purpose of these books was to find as many Jewish names as possible and make this big compendium of Jewish sports heroes. In many ways, it's the way American Jewish history used to be taught where we talked about Chaim Solomon and we talked about Jewish heroes, etc. So I'm, it's made a very good bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah gift over the years, and I'm very jealous because they sell more copies than my book, but be that as it may. But I should warn you that very often in their zeal to enumerate as many Jews as possible, Gentiles find their way into the book, which leads to the following true autobiographical uh, anecdote. It was mentioned before, I was privileged to play lacrosse at City College in the 1960s. Lacrosse, if you don't know, is basketball with fouling permitted. And uh, our coach was Ukrainian-American. His name was George Barron, clearly not a Jew. 
but he found his way into this book on Jews and sports. So I take you now to a halftime rant on Lewiston Stadium at City College, because I wasn't a particularly good player, and he turns to me and says, Gurak, there's this encyclopedia of Jews and sports. I'm in it. You're never going to be in it. <laughs> so I think one of the reasons that uh, I did this work was to answer George Barron in a very Jewish way. If you can't get yourself into a book, write a book. So that became one of the reasons for doing my book, Judaism's Encounter with American Sports. But seriously, if you've come to hear about sports, this really isn't about sports. It's using sports to understand some very basic ideas within Jewish history, both contemporaneously and going back in time. And I want to make two points about my work. One thing that I emphasize in uh, my work on Judaism and sports is that um, sports is a community-defining situation. If you're allowed to play for your team or play for your city, it makes a great statement about acceptance. And I was taught this some 40-some-odd years ago when I was a student at Columbia University where I took courses in African-American history. And my professor, the, the late, great Nathan Huggins, used to say, for minority groups, wars and sports are community-defining situations. And of course, for him as an African-American, the metaphor was Jack Roosevelt Robinson. Literally, the civil rights movement post-World War II begins when Jackie Robinson's allowed to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Whatever happened to them, they ended up in LA later on. It was a big statement in its own way, and it took place a year and a half before uh, Harry S. Truman, President Truman, desegregated the armed forces. Wars and sports are community-defining situations. So the same thing applies to Jews, although in a lowercase uh, way. In, I guess the best example is the experience of Jews with reference to the Olympics. So I'm going to tell you things that you know already, but it's worth repeating. 1936, every time there's an Olympics, the host country uses this as an opportunity to strut their stuff about how important their country actually is. And you know, in 1936, 1936, the games were in Berlin, and there were a number of Jewish athletes there were some basketball players who, who played, and basketball at that point was a very minor sport, but there were two great Jewish runners, and if you saw the movie about Jesse Owens, you know, they were Marty Glickman and Sam Stoller, and they were kept off the four by 100 relay race because Avery Brundage, remember that name, who was the head of the American Olympic Committee, didn't want to embarrass Adolf Hitler, by having Jews stand on the victory platform when they win the four by 100 meter race. Now, I have to tell you as a kid growing up in New York where I acquired my distinctive Bronx uh, dialect, Marty Glickman was known as the voice of the New York Knicks and the New York Giants. And I'll just tell you a quick sports story. He was a histrionic announcer. And one time the Giants were playing on a Sunday against the Minnesota Vikings and they were down 17 points in the fourth quarter and they score one touchdown, two touchdowns. They're driving for the winning touchdown, two minutes to go in the game. Glickman says, if you, within the sound of my voice and you're on a highway, pull off the road. I don't want to cause any accidents. And a friend of mine was driving on the Sawmill River Parkway and he saw cars pulling off the road. Monty Glickman, but Monty Glickman is a very important 
very important figure in terms of, and Sam Stolder, of course, if you want to understand where Jews were in the world in 1936, look at the experience of Stoller and Glickman. Of course, you know where I'm going. If you fast forward to 1972, Avery Brundage is now the head of the International Olympic Committee, and uh, 11 Israeli athletes are murdered by Palestinian terrorists. And after one day of mourning, Brundage gives this odious speech in which he says that um, international politics have invaded the pristine Olympics and he barely mentions the fact that Israeli athletes were killed. And to this day, Israel is not accepted in many respects by the world community. I should say, a year after the 72 Olympics, another international organization that has not been particularly favorably disposed towards Jews, named, though it's Israel called the United Nations, defines Zionism as racism. Wars and sports uh, define uh, community. And I guess I would be remiss if I didn't mention Greenberg and, and Koufax in 1986. If you want to see where American Jews are at in the mind of America, look at the experience of Hank Greenberg in 1934, where you know, every year the high holy days and the baseball season intersect or interrupt with one another. Today the baseball season lasts forever, but the fall classic always intersects with the Jewish fall classic. And the Detroit Tigers are in the midst of a pennant race against the evil empire, the New York Yankees, and a lot of pressure is placed on Greenberg to play. He's told by his manager, Mickey Conkren, you've got a community obligation to play for your team. And he plays Rosh Hashanah. God is good by Yom Kippur, the magic number, if you know what that is in baseball, to clinch the pennant is down to three. He sits out the game and uh, he's not an observant Jew, but he goes into a conservative synagogue in Detroit, Shari Tzedek, and receives a standing ovation from the Jews in the congregation. So now we, six, we fast forward to 1965, if I'm not mistaken, and Colfax is out here. Uh, by the way, if you want to know how Detroit Jews are doing in the 1930s in a town which was highly anti-Semitic, Henry Ford, Ku Klux Klan, and Father Coughlin are all there. Look at the sports metaphor. So now we go to the 1960s and Colfax announces that he won't play on Yom Kippur. And a more tolerant America understands that a Jew might want to observe his holiest day just like Christians do. And you probably know the story because you're Los Angeles. He doesn't pitch and his roommate Don Drysdale pitches. And those of you who are interested in the economics of sports, you may recall that the two of them held out for $125,000 each. Now, A-Rod used to get $125,000 every time he struck out for the Yankees, how things have changed. And, and, and Drysdale pitches terribly, and when he's taken out of the game, he hands the ball to Walt Alston, the longtime manager of the Dodgers, and he says these immortal words of Jewish history. He says, Skipper, I bet you wish today I was also a Jew, because if he was a Jew, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be playing. Anyway, community-defining situations. That's one of the things I'm looking at in studying the history of Jew, Jews and sports. The other, are we accepted or are we not accepted? And there's a flip side, there's a second dimension, and that is what are the problems that come when you are accepted, when you join a different team, a secular team called a sports team, and what does it mean as far as your religious values are concerned, maintaining your Judaism. 
To be honest with you, I've given talks like this a lot over the course of the years. And a few years ago, I gave a talk like this in Pittsburgh. And uh, during the question and answer period, an elderly gentleman, very tall gentleman, got up and said, I want to tell you my family's story. He was the son of an East European rabbi who ended up in Pittsburgh. This was in the 1930s where there was no yeshiva or day school, and they sent him to the public school. Anyone from Pittsburgh? Well, there's a very good sports school there to this day called Taylor Alderdice High School. He's on the team. His father doesn't know he's on the team. He tells his mother, I'll play on the team, and we play Tuesdays and Fridays, and I promise to be home before the Sabbath starts. So you know what happens. The game goes into triple overtime, and he gets home late. And his father's very angry, and he excoriates his son. At the end, his father finally calms down and says, oh, by the way, did you win? And for this gentleman, he said, this is my first recognition that he was becoming Americanized, okay? That he was aware of, of sports. So, look, our clock and calendar, the Koufax story, does not comport with the secular clock and calendar. Uh, it's not Judaism's calendar, it's a secular calendar. It's an alternate religion with its own creeds. It talks about historical figures. It, talk, it has holidays. There's a holiday, the, the first Sunday in February is a civic holiday. It's called Super Bowl Sunday, okay, which we all as Americans get involved in. And I guess the first Sunday in November in New York is the New York City Marathon. That's also a, a secular celebration. So. How do you fit your Judaism, if you're interested in sports, into your life as a Jew? Do you play Little League Baseball or go to religious school? A very prominent problem. For more traditional Jews, we'll call them Orthodox Jews, for yeshiva students. You see I'm wearing yeshiva athletics uh, a shirt today. Is playing sports, even if you can factor out playing on the Sabbath and playing on the holidays, is this the proper thing for a Jewish boy or girl to be doing in terms of spending this time? Now in Jewish tradition, the paradigmatic Jew is Yaakov, Jacob. Now it's true there is a wrestling sequence in his life. He wrestles an angel. But in Jewish tradition, Jacob is known as Ish Yoshev Ohalim, the fellow who sits is my interpretation, on the sidelines, as opposed to his brother, Esau, Esau, and the Torah says he's Ish Hasadeh, the man of the fields, left field, right field, center field, perhaps here, okay? So the question is, does playing sports not only take you away from your Judaism, but also the question of what is the appropriate behavior pattern for religious Jews? That's for men. For women, a similar problem, but there's one other case, and the question of tzniut, of modesty, how you dress when you play sports, uh, the uniforms you wear. Uh, I can tell you many stories about that, but, but I won't th this, this morning. Um, again, what's the appropriate behavior pattern for Jews? On the other hand, as I mentioned last night, sports has been used somewhat effectively and I talked about it last night, as a mechanism for drawing people into the synagogue. That Mordechai Kaplan story about the shul with the pool. They come to play, they stay to pray. I think in the, uh, 
description of me, there was some reference here to a very interesting uh, event that took place between Solomon Schechter and Louis Finkelstein. For those who don't know, Solomon Schechter was not the founder of the Solomon Schechter Synagogue, okay? He was the founder of 20th century conservative Judaism, and Louis Finkelstein was later on the chancellor of the Jewish Logical Seminary. And the story goes like this, and it, it appeared in Life magazine in 1950, where Louis Finkelstein's picture was on the front cover, which was a big deal for American Jews, that, that an American Jew could be, along with Bess Meyerson, on the cover of Life magazine. So the story goes that uh, Schechter and Finkelstein are walking through the streets during the World Series in 1912 and 1913, and they come across a, a um, cigar stand where they had the score of the World Series. And Schechter says to Finkelstein, do you play sports? The other version is, do you know, do you know about sports? Doesn't make a big difference. But, and Finkelstein said no. And Schechter said, you know what? If you don't know sports, you'll never be an effective rabbi in America. What he meant by this is, when a rabbi gets up and he mentions sports, people start listening. And then maybe, maybe they'll listen to his Torah message. Although that isn't always the case, because sometimes when a professor talks about sports, you're sort of interested. When a rabbi talks about sports, you know, maybe this is nishane, not the right thing for a rabbi to talk about. I'm going to depart from my speech and tell you one other story. In 2004, a, an Orthodox congregation in Charleston, South Carolina, celebrated its 150th anniversary. And I was asked to write a little history of that congregation. And then I came down a year later when they uh, celebrated this, this great moment. And the rabbi got up in the synagogue and he said, uh, this is a great moment for our congregation. And we thank God that he's preserved us in life and sustains to reach this, reach this wonderful day that last Tuesday the Boston Red Sox defeated the New York Yankees. <laughs> and after saying that, you know, people were interested in listening to what he had to say as a Torah message. That's my, my long preamble. What we're gonna do right now is go to the very beginning of Jewish history and spend some time looking at these phenomena, the question of acceptance and the question of appropriate behavior. And here's, I'm telling you, I'm using the metaphor of sports to talk about some very basic aspects of, uh, of Jewish history, starting with the ancient period, actually. Now, first of all, a distinction should be made between Jewish attitude towards sports and towards physical fitness. So the first thing, and there are a variety of sources that I'll just mention here in passing. First of all, the Talmud tells us that a father is obliged to teach his son three things. We'll engender it and we'll say children, but they say their sons. Three things, to work and to pray and to swim. So swimming exact, is not exactly the most robust sports, sport in the Middle East, but swimming it was not a sports dictum, it's pikoach nefesh, saving your life in case someone wouldn't, wouldn't drown, okay? The ancient Jews had muscles, they worked the fields, they were farmers. Moving to the 12th and 13th century, the Rambam Maimadis writes that a man should aim to maintain physical health and vigor in order that his soul may be upright 
to know the Almighty. If one leads a sedentary life, couch potato, he didn't say that, couch potato, and does not exercise, even if he eats wholesome foods and takes care of himself in accordance with medical rules, he will be throughout his life subject to aches and pains and strength for film. But sports is different. Sports, again, is a whole different ball game. And we start with the Greco-Roman period where Jews want to be part of the Greco-Roman world. And part of that means engage in sports. So our first stopping point is with the story of the Maccabees. So here's one of the ironies of modern Jewish history. The nickname of our sports teams at Yeshiva is the Maccabees. Our women are the Lady Maccabees. But if you think about it, the Maccabees, that's the wrong name for a Jewish sports team because the Maccabees are anti-sports, right? Jews are Hellenizing, and the Maccabees want to bring Jews back away from the palestra, from the stadium, back to the synagogue. This is a modern story writ large from the early period. Now, why do we call ourselves the Maccabees? Because in eight, and again, in Israel, Maccabeeah games. You have regional Maccabeeah games all over the country. I'm sure you have, I think you had one up here in Orange County last week, right? right. Or maybe it's going on right now. Right? So, so why, do we call, why do we call the Maccabees? Because in 1898, very basic fact of Zionist history, at the second Zionist Congress, Max Nordau got up and said, what we need for Jews is muscular Judentums, uh, muscular Judaism. We must play sports, compete, just like we, we compete against the world politically, and perhaps someday militarily, we want strong Jews. We want strong, resolute Jews. That leads, of course, the, to the founding of uh, Maccabee clubs all over Europe and into the United States. I'll talk to you about one of those clubs later on in my talk here. The other thing was that in terms of acceptance of Jews in Europe, one of the defining facts was that as part of the Volkism and racism of the late 19th century, Jews couldn't be members of these secular or Gentile clubs, whether it's Austria or Germany and France. So we, we say we're going to be the Maccabees. But historically speaking, going back in time, the truth is the Maccabees are anti-sports. Our first source is the first book of Maccabees, where it said that the high priest Jason, the evil high priest, remember this book is written by the Mac Maccabean Hasmonean dynasty, talking about what leads to the Hanuk Hanukkah story. He says, Jason, the evil high prince, left the stadium for the palestra, for the stadium. He left Judaism behind. Not only that, in order to compete uh, against pagans, some of these Jewish athletes went through the surgical operation of undoing their milah, their circumcision. And the book says, sore distress befell those people who did it. However, if you look at Maccabee book number two, we have a different story here. Maccabees book two tells us that Jason, the same high priest, sends a group of Jewish athletes to a uh, sporting event in Tyre, in, 
in what is today Lebanon, and they spent 200 uh, drachmas, but, and they were part of the games. That was the entrance fee for competition, but they didn't reverse their faith. In other words, you have this ambivalence. I want to be part of the world, and I want to be Jewish uh, at the same time. It begins back then. The larger problem was with an elite segment of the Palestinian society called Phoebes. These were young men in training who wanted to play sports because Hellenizing men did those sort of things at that point. We also know that there were Jewish sports clubs in the, before the common era. In Turkey, in Sardis, they had their own Jewish sports club. Uh, perhaps they're playing like, like a YMCA. They have their club. We have the YMHA. It goes back to the same time. We also know, we also know that in, in Asia Minor, there are, there are gymnasiums with Hebrew inscriptions I'm teasing out some data from minimal data next to the synagogue. Sure with a pool, perhaps, going back to the early period of this time period. Now, the rabbis of the Talmud were well aware of Jewish interest in sports. In fact, one of the great uh, rabbis of the Talmud, his name was Reish Lakish, what may have been a gladiator before he went straight and became a rabbi. Uh, he is the projection of a type of Jew known as the Baal Guf. The Baal Guf in Eastern Europe was the Jew who was strong and protected his own people. Should Jews go to stadiums and watch gladiators at work? The Talmud discusses that. The stadium was seen as the seat of scoffers. Those people who were falling away from Judaism, they went to sports events instead of uh, staying with the Torah. On the other hand, in the tractate of Avodah Zorah, page 18a, Rabbi Nathan says that it is permitted for Jews to go to the stadium, to the gladiator, for two reasons. One, um, if a gladiator is losing and they're about to kill the, the fighter, by the way, thumbs up meant you kill them. Thumbs down means you don't kill them in, in the way Romans did. It was permissible to go if you would yell out, save him, save him, in order that someone not be killed. Interesting. The other reason you might go, Rabbi Nathan says, is to address a problem that continues to this day. If a Jewish gladiator was killed, there should be witnesses to that death so that his wife would not be an aguna, a chained woman, which is part of the problems of contemporary Judaism along, the, uh, along those lines. How about playing the way other people play? Well, there are Mish Mishnaic sources which talk about what sort of exercises a Jew can do on the Sabbath. Can they anoint themselves with, with I guess, the ancient equivalent of Ben Gay on the Sabbath day, it's actually discussed uh, uh, on, uh, in the Talmud, which says Jews can do this during the week, but not on the Sabbath. All the, there's another adumbration. We know of women playing ball in co-ed settings, which were associated with singing and dancing after the games were over. This is an ancient version of cheerleading back in the day. 
Now, I've taken just a number of sources here. There aren't that many, but it indicates that the, the rabbis of the Talmud are writing about this because it's a phenomenon that exists. Number one, Jews wanting to play the sports, the ancient sports. Second, the limits to which Jews can play these sports. Third, what are the religious strictures that have to be followed or not followed during that time period? And the question of co-educational sports is even along uh, those, uh, those, uh, uh, those types of issues. In fact, a few years ago, there was a modern orthodox uh, think tank called Ada, which was closely related to the open orthodox movement. And Rabbi Saul Berman, who is a leading modern Orthodox rabbi, had a teshuvah, this is in the late 20th century, about whether it's permissible for children to play sports in an Arab environment uh, on the Sabbath day. And, and he took a very lenient position. And the source material he used came from the sources that I mentioned here, indicating that during the period before the Middle Ages, Jews play sports, they want to be part of the sporting scene, and this is part of these dynamics. Now, in the Middle Ages, sports uh, were done through nightly with KN tournaments, and Jews couldn't be knights, and they couldn't participate in sports. Under Islam, uh, Mamluk groups have their sporting games. Jews were not part of that. There were mock tournaments held by Christians to, to humiliate Jews through the 16th century. Uh, there were Jewish parodies of these nightly activities. In other words, at a wedding, people would dress up as if they were knights, which means Jews were aware of the nightly worlds out there. But within their own community, Jews did what came naturally. We know from the Rambam and other sources that Jews uh, study fencing in order to uh, defend themselves. Uh, and we know that uh, the question of exercising on the Sabbath also comes, uh, comes into play. There is probably uh, one of the most famous compendium of documents in the Middle Ages. It's called the Cairo Geniza. The Cairo Geniza, a Geniza for the uninitiated, is a place where Hebrew documents are placed that have God's name on it that cannot be, be destroyed. Very often they're buried, but in Cairo there was a Geniza that was, had documents for almost a thousand years, marriage, marriage licenses, community records, things of that sort. And our friend Solomon Schechter, when he came to Cairo in the early 20, late 19th century, heard about this Cairo Geniza and brought it to London, sort of like the British did with all sorts of things that they brought to London. If you go to the British Museum, you see where they took from all over the world. And there are tens of thousands of documents of the Cairo Geniza. And uh, Professor Goitain of Princeton spent his entire life studying the Cairo Geniza, did multi-volume history of the Cairo Geniza. Within a five-volume history of the Cairo Geniza, there's one sports document but it's an awfully interesting one. It's from the 13th century, where complaints are leveled that miscreant youngsters are slipping away from their parents on the Sabbath day 
and they're swimming in the Nile River. Not only, not only that, who are these kids? They are the children of synagogue leadership, and it is an embarrassment to the community. So even then, you have that sort of interest in sports among Jewish youngsters. Let me move on to the beginning of the modern period with the, with the introduced to you, the person who may have been the first modern Orthodox rabbi in the 16th century and his engagement in sports. His name was Rabbi Moses Provencal, and the year is 1560 um, in Mantua. Let me set the scene. In the 16th century in Mantua, the Gonzaga family, you know, there's a Gonzaga college in, in, out here in the West Coast, a mercantile family, and they're Jews living in Mantua, and they're becoming like the Italians, and they start to play tennis, a primitive form of tennis. Not only are they playing tennis, but there are a number of problems with their playing tennis because not only are they playing, but they're betting on the games. So I want to read to you what he says about sports and gambling and the involvement of Jewish people. He said, the, he lamented the demise of the days of yore, where sports were wholesome. The stake motive of the ancients and the moderns is not identical. With the former back in the day, winning was a sort of wholesome fun with no eye for lucre nor did those who lost feel keenly, for the stakes put up by each player were by no means an excessive amount. The modern ball players, however, may win or lose sums that are considerable, and diversion is not the primary object but material gain. So even in the uh, 16th century, there's the problem of the you know, pristine sports and the problem of gambling, and he, uh, he recognizes that. That's one problem he identifies. Here's a second problem he identifies, which I guess is very modern in its own right as well. He said that the games that these young men and older men are playing not only take place in the afternoon, they take place in the morning of the Sabbath. He says, it is not uncommon for the games to be played while the sermon is being preached in the synagogue. Now whose sermon is being preached in the synagogue? It's his sermon that's being preached in the synagogue and he calls for this sort of playing ball on the Sabbath should not be done in the morning when the sermon is being delivered, perhaps possibly in the afternoon, which is one of the sources that Rabbi Berman dealt with in his, uh, in his uh, response in the 20th century. Two last adumbrations. In the 16th century, the um, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Rudolf II of Prague, uh, hires some court Jews. A court Jew is a Jew who has money and influence, who is an advisor to the king, perhaps financially, militarily as well. And these court Jews are also involved in teaching the nobles and their children how to fence. In fact, fencing, Jews involved in fencing goes back very early, back to this time period. In other words, part of the armor of a gentleman was the ability to fence. 
when, when uh, Emperor Rudolph II does this, there's a pushback from the Gentile nobility that say, you're treating Jews like everybody else. A community is being defined through sports here in the, the 16th century. So uh, Rudy folds with an explicit decree that uh, you will lose your permit if you compete against a Jew. So this type of question of Jews wanting to play sports but uh, are unable to play sports goes back to the beginning of the modern period and modernity is around the corner where these issues will be magnified. I want to close with one other issue, one other story. I've often been asked, what was the greatest Jewish sports team of the 20th century? All Jewish sports team. Well, some people talk about the Israeli teams, uh, but some of the Israeli professional players aren't Jewish. In fact, a few years ago, Maccabee Tel Aviv came to New York. There was great excitement in the Jewish community that this Israeli team is coming. And I was asked, are you going to the game? I said, no, most of the players aren't Jewish. Okay, but there was one team, one great team, and I want to tell you its story. In 1924, an all-Jewish soccer team or football team called Hakoach Vienna won the equivalent of the Super Bowl professional championship in, in Austria, right? all-Jewish team. A year later, they came to America on a triumphant tour. They were feted by Calvin Coolidge. Taciturn Calvin met with almost nobody. He meets with this team. Tremendous excitement. Benny Leonard, the Jewish fighter, helps promote this event. They come to New York. Um, the mayor of the city of New York gives them a key to the city. There's tremendous excitement within the Jewish community of America. These great Jewish sports heroes are coming to America, and this is the 1920s, where anti-Semitism is beginning to grow in America, and here these great Jewish the Super Bowl champions are coming to America. They play 11 games in the United States, all east of, of the Mississippi River. They play in Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. They play in the polo grounds in Manhattan. They play in the polo grounds in front of 47,000 fans, the biggest turnout for soccer in America until Pelé arrived in the 1970s. They play in Sportsman's Park in St. Louis. They play in Soldier Field in Chicago. They play in Fenway Park in Boston. They play in Franklin Field in Philadelphia. Tremendous excitement. It's a great, great story, except for one thing. Three, they're there for three weeks. Three of the games are on Shabbat. And a group of rabbis, interestingly enough, this is the 1920s, a group of orthodox, conservative, and reform rabbis are outraged that this Jewish team is playing on the Sabbath. And they had just formed an organization called the Synagogue Council of America, which is now pretty much defunct and if we had more and more time, we can talk about that dynamic because in contemporary days, one of the problems in my view is that Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Rabbis, and Lely just don't talk. The Synagogue Council of America has established that here, and their first campaign is to stop this team from playing on the Sabbath. And they are fundamentally unsuccessful. The American Jewish community is so 
is so excited that the Sabbath can be deferred for another time. We're so proud of these athletes. Now, ultimately, the Synagogue Council of America decides that it will deal with issues that are not, that are not specifically religious. But it starts out with this campaign of leaders of the Reformed, Conservative, and Orthodox lay leadership and rabbinic leadership to try to stop these games from taking place. So sports plays a very important role, again, in defining, in defining uh, Judaism. Look, I said this to some extent last night, but let me just conclude with the following. I opened my talk today by talking about uh, George Barron, who was my lacrosse coach at City College and who influenced me in some respects to, to write this book. Well, there was another gentleman who had the same spelling of the name but pronounced differently who also influenced me, and his name was Salo W. Barone. Salo W. Barone was the, professor, the greatest professor, uh, most influential professor of Jewish history in America, perhaps in the world, at Columbia University where I got my degree. I was a student of his students, and he wrote many, many volumes, 439 articles. He did one book on American Jewish history called Steeled by Adversity. And when people asked him, what was the adversity that was steeled, S-T-E-E-L-E-D, steeled by adversity, is how do we live as a Jewish community, as a robust Jewish community, in a situation where we gain acceptance? And one of the things in this sports book is that this is one of the challenges played out in the field. Again, do you send your kid to religious school, Talmud Torah, services on Sabbath, or do you play, or do you play Little League Baseball? It's one of the dynamics. So in some respects, I think that notwithstanding some of the problems we face today as a community in terms of anti-Semitism, the big problem is how do we survive in an environment where we are accepted? Acceptance and survival is the key, and that's the challenge we face. It all can be seen through a very strange metaphor called Judaism's encounter with American sports. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Well, you mentioned sports, gambling, and Jews. Right. You are all modern, that's a big one you. On how to history and basketball of a great year followed by a scandalous year. Yeah. Dominated by Jewish players and coach. Right. Um, any comments about that? Any connections to anti Semitism that came out of Yeah. What he's referring to. I can do this, I can do an hour on this, but I'll only do five minutes. In the history of the NCAA basketball, there's only one team that won both the NIT and the NCAA the same year. And that was City College of New York, 1950. Basketball was very big at City College. In fact, a year earlier, a year earlier, uh, the City College basketball team, during intercession, went out west. They went and they played at UC Berkeley, and they played at University of San Francisco, and they flew out to the West Coast. Now, a colleague of mine who's a Los Angelian said, that's incredible. Back in the late 40s, that was a very expensive, long trip. How did they afford to go out to the West Coast? Well, it turns out that there was someone on the West Coast who was a City College alumnus who paid for it. His name was Edward G. Robinson. That's how big basketball was at City College. Having no more world to conquer, a la Alexander the Great, in 1951, 
some of these players, oh, excuse me, on the way to the double championship, they played against the University of Kentucky, coached by Adolf Rupp. Adolf Rupp. Adolf Rupp is coming to New York to play against a team made up of Jews and African-Americans. The coach of City College was the great Nat Holman. His assistant coach was Bobby Sand. And uh, before the game started, Holman says to one of the black players, Ed Warner, he says, when the teams line up, ext extend your hand to one of the players, shake hands with him. And the white player wouldn't shake hands with, with Ed Warner. Okay? City College won by 30 points. It was the biggest defeat Kentucky had ever experienced. So we were the toast of the town. Nat Holman was on the Ed Sullivan Show. That's how big it was. In 1951, having no more worlds to conquer, a group of the players, blacks and Jews, got involved in the first of many point-shaving scams. You know what point-shaving is? Everybody not Point-shaving is if yeshiva's playing against UCLA, God forbid, okay, and yeshiva is, and UCLA is favored by 110 points, and they only win by 100 points. If you bet yeshiva, you win. Okay, they point, they shave points. Where they learn to cheat? They learn to cheat in the Borscht Belt, where one of the uh, activities for the, um, for the residents was they had basketball games. Grocery was played against Concord, they played against other, and people would bet on the games. So they got involved with mobsters, and they bet, and the big skin, it was called the city dump. And uh, it was a terrible thing. And Adolf Rupp said, those gamblers, Jewish gamblers, can't touch my boys with a 10-foot pole until three years later, a scandal took place at University of Kentucky. So, it, I went to City, I entered City College in 1967. As Jews, maybe this is the wrong metaphor, every Tisha B'Av, we remember the Churban, Zech the Churban, what happened to us. 16 years later, I was just a kid when it, when it happened, within the sports authority at City College, a lot of the guys were still around. There was a memory of what we were and what became what became City College basketball became so poor that by the time I got there, they were losing to Yeshiva University. So it was a, it was a tr I, I can't tell you, uh, I'm not giving you the whole flavor. It was, a, it was a tremendous, tremendous blot on City College's reputation. And in fact, for many years, college basketball was not permitted in Madison Square Garden because there was so much betting going on. Yes, that's, that, that's, part, that's part of the... Uh, this story. Look, Henry Ford, I, I can talk about this, Henry Ford, the great anti-Semite, used to say, Jews don't play sports, they try to control sports. Part of that anti-Semitic idea that we don't play, we are controlling, you can use sports to discuss Jewish uh, anti-Semitism in a variety of ways. Yes, ma'am. Um, I was going to say, that the metaphor you're using of sports to show the struggle and the conflict in Jews trying to be religious practicing Jews and also part of a community would appear to apply to every aspect of life anywhere but in Israel uh, to some degree because here except the pro professional teams play on Shabbat and, the, and no no and the ultra religious don't like them coming and playing the games that, that's another but you're right uh, but uh, in politics I mean you'd have to uh, 
office offices where, where Jews have to work on Saturday. Um, uh, I'm thinking of um, the military, which itself is a conflict even in Israel, but are you part of the military community or are you part of the Jewish community? And can you be a practicing Jew and be part of the military? Right. Um, you could look at almost any community activity in a, in a country where Jews are the minority and see that same struggle that you Acceptance brings with it problems. I use sports. You could use theater, you could use music, you can use all sorts of things. I mentioned Yossela Rosenblatt last night. Yossela Rosenblatt, who was the voice, by the way, of the jazz singer, the original jazz singer, as part of the Yom Kippur service, he's that voice. He was given many opportunities to uh, perform on the Sabbath and he didn't. So that was one example of that. A absolutely. Look, um, I often talk about uh, Joe Lieberman in a more accepting America, etc. Now, I usually only promote myself, but I notice the next year you're going to have a dear friend and close colleague of mine speaking here. Her name is Deborah Dashmore. Okay, and she's going to, one of her talks is going to be on Jew, called GI Jews, or the experience of Jew, Jewish GIs during World War II. Am I correct, Ari? Okay, so one of the chapters of her book, please remember and ask her, is a chapter called Eating Ham for Uncle Sam, where she talks about the experience of Jewish soldiers in World War II who are in integrated barracks, by the way, unlike African Americans who are in segregated barracks, who for the first time in their lives are confronted with the issue of eating pork products. You need that protein to be strong. That's what's on the menu. How do you navigate that? And I teach my Orthodox students that there are levels of kosher eating and there are levels of non-kosher eating. And one of the highest or lowest levels of, depending how you look at it, of course, um, of kosher eating is whether you eat pork products. From a, from a purely religious point of view, lobster and pork are the same. But uh, the joke is that the, the Greeks didn't sacrifice lobsters in the Holy Temple. They did pork products. So now you're eating ham for Uncle Sam. How do you navigate that? In, a, in an environment where, now there's some anti-Semitism in the military, but not comparable to the racism. Sure, a book could be done and books could be done on Jews in the theater. I chose sports. That's my game. But you're right, it has to do with how do you live in a, as a minority in, an accepting, in a generally accepting society. If you're forced to live your, among your own kind, there are dynamics for that too. Okay, you're 100% correct. I chose sports. Sir? Is, it, is, the, is the modern reform view of performing sports on Shabbat, an accepting view or a non-accepting view? Within, within the reform movement? Yes. So reform rabbis would very much like their congregants to, uh, to attend religious services as opposed to playing sports. As conservative and orthodox, the reality is, reality is that, you know, when I did the sports book, I interviewed Harold Kushner who I don't like because he sells far more books than I do, okay? And he did When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he said, uh, when I think of my religious school, I think of the 
Hanukkah story, and I think that the, the Hellenizers actually won because people are opting out of Judaism to play sports. So it is an interdenominational inter problem, far more for liberal Jews than practicing Orthodox Jews. I live in a strange Orthodox neighborhood in the Bronx where there is a kosher little league. Not only that, there's a kosher girls little league called the League of Our Own, which was established by a group of Orthodox feminists who want their kids to play on Sunday, not Saturday. And that girls league, which started with Orthodox girls, then moved to uh, Jewish girls and now Christian girls who want to play with other girls. So yes, it's a problem, it's a problem for all rabbis, the primacy of the, the gym over the synagogue. So maybe you have a shul with a pool, but as I said last night, that didn't always work. Gentlemen, I have a question that I, have, I see a hand up there. Sir. One comment and then a question. Yosemite Rosenblatt, the jazz singer, was offered the key role and turned it down and he only sang one song. Right. And that was the father, the jazz singer's father, and he sang that in Yiddish. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Again, he had, he had multiple opportunities to expand his horizons. He did records that were pretty popular, but um, yes, there were limitations to what he would do. Yes, and your question? And he died very young, uh, in 1933 in Israel. Right, and he died penniless too, yes. He got, he, got involved, he got involved in a failed newspaper, by the way. He lost a lot of his money doing that, yes. I was gonna ask about modern dance companies. Mm -hmm. They have the Bacheva Dance Company that's right. very influential, and we're having another Israeli dance company come here whose name I forgot for, for an art center. Mm -hmm. You didn't mention, and also uh, the Eichmann, Boris, Boris Eichmann in Russia, mm -hmm. has his own dance company, it's Jewish. Right, uh, right. I imagine they have the same problems, the same problems in terms of the Sabbath and uh, performance. Yes, thank you. Right, but I didn't talk about dance, you're right. Yes, sir. This intolerance uh, towards minorities, has it gotten better or worse in the last 500 years? I mean, has it gotten better or worse in the last 500 for years? For Jews? Just the minorities, the Jews as well as, you can take the blacks, you can take the gays. Uh, well, until last year or so, things were really improving in so many, so many respects. Um, certainly for Jews, um, well, things have gotten better. Things have gotten better. When Jesse Owens wins his gold medals, he comes back with the Olympic Committee to America. There's a parade down Fifth Avenue, and there's a banquet uh, held in the Waldorf Astoria. He's part of that celebration, except he goes up the back, he goes up the back uh, freight elevator. He can't go up the front elevator. So with all these things, th things have improved. I didn't tell you my favorite. I spared you my favorite yeshiva sports story, which sort of speaks to this. Uh, about 30 years ago, we had a game out in uh, Madison, New Jersey, against Drew University. They're a Methodist school. And our kids come out, and they're wearing, some of the kids wear yarmulkes when they play, and some of them don't. We walk out on the court. The referee, it's understood in basketball that you can't wear jewelry when you play. Like some of the baseball players, they wear like everything around their necks, because God forbid you might hang yourself the rim, whatever it may be. But there's an understanding that you can wear a yarmulke when you play. So we come out to warm up, 
referee comes out, he says, they gotta take those things off. We, the coaches, say, fine. Boys, put your sweats on, we're going back to Washington Heights. I'll be damned, literally, if I'm gonna tell my players to take off a yarmulke. The drill coach says to the referee, what are you talking about? They've been wearing those things for 30 years. Now, we've been wearing these things for more than 30 years. We've been playing drill for 30 years. <laughs> Referees, they got to take those. I'll never forget this. We go in the back room. We call Boston. We get a fellow on the phone. His name is Scotty Whitelaw. If you know Yiddish, Nish Ana from Unzura, not one of us. He says, put the referee on the phone. He says, you dirty so-and-so. They've been wearing those things for 30 years. Let them play the goddamn game. Game starts, we lose by 29 points. On the way back on the bus, one of the kids walks up to the head coach and says, Coach, we should have gotten out of town when we have a chance. Okay? But the kid was wrong because the truth of the matter is the NCAA, which has a rule book which is bigger than the Talmud, okay, accommodates us. And it's not a Jewish story, my friend, because a few years ago, if you follow sports, they had the same problem with another university that has a Y on its helmet. That's called Brigham Young, and they're Mormons, and they were in the big dance, you know what the big dancers, the 64 team? And they made a mistake, and they bracketed them to play on Sunday in the second round. God was good, they lost in the first round. So if you know the movie Chariots of Fire, it doesn't, it doesn't apply today. Last story, two years ago, no, four years ago, Jewish Day School in Dallas, the Berrin Academy, is in a regional tournament, and Strangely enough, they had a very good team, and they get to the semifinals, and that game was supposed to take place on a Friday night. They appealed to the Texas, whatever it is, and they say, no, the game's got to take place on, Saturday, on Friday night. A good Jew named Stan, uh, Jeff Van Gundy, he's not Jewish, okay, who was then coaching in Texas, says, let them play. They, the, they move the game back to Friday morning, Unfortunately, the Berlin Academy lost, but things have, got, things have gotten better. Last story, our Lady Max, our women's team at Yeshiva, some of them are married, and they're strictly orthodox, and they play with their heads covered. And it's understood, based upon that Drew story, that that can take place. And you know what helps us? Strangely enough, they have the same rules apply for Muslim athletes in the United States. So in terms of diversity, in terms of tolerance, in many respects, sports is, sports is ahead, of, ahead of the game. But, you know, last, I can go on forever. Last thing, it's easier when you have a team, when you have an individual athlete, like a figure skater, for example, they're not going to change the entire system to accommodate one athlete. So there are barriers to overcome, but things have, got, things have gotten much better. It, this is in mine's a very optimistic view of America, and, and I just have to tell you what you've heard from me the last two days, but certainly today, is our problems as Jews, yeah, we should be vigilant about anti-Semitism, no question about it. We've got organizations that do this sort of thing. The biggest question is, are we going to survive as a robust community in a, in a country which is generally accepting of us? Great question. Decent Last answer. Question. Last question. Are there sports that are Jewish sports, and sports that are not Jewish sports? Has that changed over time? 
and if so, why? And I give the example of boxing, which was a, you know, a, a profuse... There were 20 Jewish world world champions in the 20s. And right. now you see hardly any Jewish right. boxers. Okay. So, so you said the phenomenon of Jewish sports versus Jews. I mean, Jews were, sports with Jews are more active than others. Okay, two things. First of all, I was going to say chess. That's the first thing. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, boxing is a sport of poor people, minority people who are struggling to make it. No question about it. I'm out here in California. Uh, one of my cousin's children asked me, can I name the five greatest uh, sport, Jewish sports heroes in the 20th century? I had to think for a while. I, I came up with Sandy Koufax, number one, Hank Greenberg, number two, who played handball with my mother back in the day, and the third was Mark Spitz. So Mark Spitz's father couldn't, the ability of Mark Spitz to win all his gold medals has a lot to do with the fact that he was able to compete in aquatic clubs, sports clubs, which were off limits to his parents and grandparents. So that's a big deal. That's number one. Number two, if I can use yeshiva as an example, we have sports teams, basketball, baseball, wrestling, fencing, cross country, soccer, golf, and tennis. Anyone guess what our best teams are and what sport were the best? Tennis and golf. <laughs> because we've got kids from California and Florida who have tennis and golf in their backgrounds and it's part of the Jews establishing their own country clubs, playing in general country clubs, acquiring these sports with your parents and grandparents. But it's a good, it's a good sociological trope to see what sports different groups get involved in. Well, weren't the Jews big in basketball? Didn't they win tournaments? Yes, yeah, yeah. I said there, there was a time where basketball was a Jewish sport. You can go on YouTube, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a movie that I'm involved in, that I was involved in, called The First Basket, which profiles the life of Ozzy Sheckman, who made the first basket in the history of the NBA. And uh, it took so long for this filmmaker to get the film done that I appear in the movie tr both with a beard and without a beard. That's how long, how, but it's a great movie, it's a great movie. Anyway, thanks a lot, it's been a lot of fun.